0: Hello beautiful people. You're listening to the Communal Table Podcast, part of Food and Wine Pro. I'm your host, Kat Kinsman, and my guest today is the incredible David Chang, who you know from, oh good God, a gazillion different things. An empire of restaurants, some astonishing cookbooks, some astonishing, a a growing media empire. Um, The effect that he has had on the way that uh, people in our culture eat and dine and think about food is um, inestimable. Did I say that word right? I don't know, we're <laughs> but we're just going to get into it. Dave, I'm so glad you are here.
1: Thank you for having me, Kat.
0: Oh, golly. <laughs> Where to even start? You are, you've are you got so much going on right now. You have a brand new little baby.
1: Yeah, it was about a m- almost a month old, and its it's been awesome. Yeah. I've done very little my wife's done. <laughs> Almost everything.
0: It's uh, you know, the labor falls down <laughs> that way sometimes. But and you also have, at the same time, bunch of new stuff opening at once. So you've got in Hudson Yards, mm-hmm. and you also have a bunch of stuff on the West Coast. So that's how many restaurants do you have at this point?
1: Um, it's, I don't know, in the teens. <laughs> yeah. I actually don't try to count because it's all one giant like. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's just multi. Yeah. But how are you feeling? Are you sleeping? Or are you?
1: I am sleeping. S- sleep's been the same amount, which is not very much because I've never slept that much. But I think I've been more tired. Yeah. Uh, simply because when I come home, it's more about not shutting down. Yeah. That's what is like exhausting. I can't figure. out, I was like, why am I so tired? Because I'm literally sleeping the same amount, uh, spread out over maybe, you know, two or three different uh, time frames. But I think when I come home now, it's like I'm on like constant alert because I want to make sure that the baby's all right.
0: Yeah. I mean, that being emotionally present is exhausting. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
1: I've never felt that. That's what's really different for me. Besides having the child, it's just like, oh, I can't unplug at home
0: yeah yeah not and that
1: that ever was the case but now it's like at another level
0: right because you were you were flying free for a, a long yes. time bachelor bachelor day <laughs> for um when did you meet your wife
1: uh, i met her four five years ago you
0: okay know. and she was ready to sign on to the, the what it means to be with a, a chef
1: well yeah but not really she yeah. didn't know because uh it was Those are different. It was just a different time in my life. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, let's, okay, let's backtrack a little bit. When, so we actually, the first time we met was probably 2008 or 9. What year did your first book come out?
1: Right around the same time. Yeah. And that was probably like, in like most insane time. Uh, (laughs)
0: Yeah. So you, you, uh, I remember I was working at AOL and you came in to do an interview and my colleague had actually brought you in and I was just sitting there thinking, I had a million things to ask you because our, was it that long ago? So we've known each other a decade. (laughs) I mean, not super well, but I feel at the same time, like when we've had time to talk, we've made the most of it. Um, But I remember you you came in and um, you're, pretty quiet and uh you were you were trying some things that really hadn't been necessarily seen in the restaurant world before and you had this book and I had so many million questions I wanted to ask you but my colleague had brought you in so she was running the interview and I just wanted to like keep you there and understand uh your brain you were doing s- so I think at that point you had uh, you had the cookbook you had Sambar, we uh, had
1: l- some co and noodle bar okay yeah yeah and the cookbook came out and 2010, we had opened up Mapeche in Midtown. So it was just three restaurants in the cookbook then.
0: Just that. No, but it was all... (laughs) Listen, they were
1: all tiny. One restaurant was 12 seats. Another was like 50 seats. Another Mm -hmm. was like 60 seats. So really, just wound up being one restaurant.
0: (laughs) Right. But the things I I know about your brain also is that even if you had a small restaurant, it's not the seats. Like the full blast of your care and attention on, on that. It's not any sort of less energy than it would be for a 300 seat place
1: yeah things were full-on then <laughs> yeah.
0: and what do you mean by full-on let's talk about that
1: i mean i really have a hard time distinguishing when and how anything gets delineated in terms of like a linear time frame if that makes any that, sense that, because <laughs> to, to my word it just brain, it sure doesn't does. <laughs> seem like anything happened uh yeah <laughs> um but I can look back vaguely and think not like lovingly and nostalgically, other than that yeah. was just if I could just summarize it, intense. Yeah. It yeah. <laughs> was just uh, no sleep, all in, all every day was uh, like really we felt like everything was gonna end. I still feel that way, but yeah. then it was much more palpable
0: yeah I mean well it's also a setup where if you're if you have places that are that size you're dealing with the customers in a really do you call them customers or guests I don't know yeah (laughs) but but you're dealing with them in a really intimate way because I remember eating at uh at Co um sort of early on and that was one of the first times where I uh, experienced where there was the kitchen where the people who were making the food were also, you were interacting with them in such an intimate kind of way and talking through all that stuff. You set up that model of, of service right there where, where that is that exchange, where you're walking through people, people through st- maybe things that are unfamiliar to them. So you kind of set yourself up for this this talking to people.
1: Yeah, well, that's the funny thing is I, I, <laughs> the whole aspect of having having an open kitchen um, was not something that I wanted originally. Yeah. <laughs> and you just sort of adapted. And um, I never really thought about the guest or the customer dining in a way. Mm-hmm. And I think that was a benefit and a detriment starting out. Um, all I cared about was the food. And I didn't, like, uh, how should I say... I didn't behave in a way that I acknowledged that there was anything else happening.
0: <laughs> it, it became, the, the way that transmuted was into an incredibly emotional experience on the guest side. I can tell you that. I left and I was alternating laughing hysterically and crying. And my friend who I was there with at the time, we, we were just... We we were blown away by, away by the intensity of of the feelings and emotions of it because there is that care and interaction with the person who's making the food who maybe wasn't somebody who was necessarily uh, when they thought they were going to be a chef they didn't know they were going to have to be talking to people right
1: I mean it, it wasn't about performance right yeah. it, we it was like I think back in those days we used to think that uh, we were um, like a, a like an animal in a in a zoo. <laughs> and if you think about the it perspective, the, like the, the people, the, the animals that are uh, behind like glass, they don't care about the guests too much. Right. They're just there. <laughs> and it's like, don't feed the animals. Yeah. And that's sort of how we felt back then. Mm-hmm. It's like our job is to make the food and the food alone.
2: Yeah.
1: And uh, again, that was a benefit because it allowed us to to just cook and to be sort of reckless in the best way possible. Yeah. And it worked till it didn't work.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And did you would you talk with your your cooks like after service there about like how did that feel or was it just like under not addressed at all or um yes and no um
1: I had a hard time understanding um that there could be anything less than like like a pursuit of excellence in a kitchen. Mm-hmm. So um how we thought about the end of the day wasn't as reflective as it probably should have been. Yeah. It was very intense. Um, and we're still talking about, and it's always yeah. hard to rationalize today in 2019, right. what it was 15 years ago, mm-hmm. which seems not too long ago, but 15 years is a fucking long time. Yeah, And, um,
0: the fact that you've had that longevity is <laughs> amazing. It's
1: crazy. Um, but it was still like, uh, An experiment I mean in some ways Momofuku and what we're doing was almost like an art project
0: I yeah I fully and
1: we didn't know um no one knew what was going on and partly the reason what we're doing is no one expected anything to work so we didn't care and I think back then I cared so much about doing whatever was necessary for the perfection or pursuit of perfection for the food that that's how I was taught as well. We were all instruments (laughs) to getting to that, Mm -hmm. that the prospect of feeling good about yourself was such a foreign concept Mm -hmm. or even the staff. I think I had a hard time understanding how, um, someone could not see what we were trying to do. And, um, It must have been incredibly difficult for cooks back then. And I have a lot of reflection about how I acted and how I managed. And I'm not mad at myself like I used to be for Mm -hmm. not being able to be better. I didn't know how. Yeah. And there was no frame of reference. Like, um, in a weird way like now I can see uh, representation in media today and how different that is for people that are coming up yeah and there was no representation for me yeah to know any other way of cooking other than how I had learned even yeah. though you knew that um, there were other ways like it took a long time to to sort of have that reckoning and I think about uh, a post in eGullet, one of the very first entries oh, I in read e-gullet, a lot of eGullet, yeah, um, back in the day of Noodle Bar, was a, a a blogger basically just ripping me up, saying uh, how I wasn't yelling at a a cook, but I was basically like telling him very intensely, "You're you're not doing your job, you're not doing your job," mm-hmm. and I'll never forget that because I was sort of uh, not defiant but incredulous that. I could be misrepresented or misunderstood because yeah. all I wanted was for both the diner and the cook right to do great. I couldn't understand how it could be perceived as negative. Yeah. It just was so hard for me to see and I'll never forget reading that post and you can still read it on Eater. It's basically me being criticized for caring uh, in a way that was came across as negative and the last line of it was the irony of it all was all David Chang cared about was, you know, the, the, the quality of the dining experience, but he's the one that was the perpetrator. He was the reason why wow. um, I had a bad meal there. And that uh, fucked me up. Yeah. The... Because I at my core, I all I cared about was right. their having a good time and I couldn't find a way to figure out how to translate that. I didn't have the tools. Or the emotional well-being, or anything, quite frankly, to find a way to communicate that, other than work faster, harder, try more, be more intense, like force yourself to find a way to make it as delicious as possible. And in an open kitchen, that's a the original noodle bar is what size of a one-car garage. You can feel oh, everything.
0: I'm an emotional sponge. yeah I, you can feel when the kitchen's off when the front of a house is when there's when there's tension there and it translates. It's so invisible and so palpable. Yeah and that's you know,
1: again, very good things happen and very bad things happen and 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 when I started to get that response, obviously I knew I needed to get better. I just it's yeah. taken a long time it's because hard. Cooking is a very stressful thing. It can be very stressful. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was 26, 27. I never had a leadership position in my life. On top of it all, I feel very empathetic when I see other chefs or any business owner that are just trying to make ends meet. So, like, when I see a mother freaking out in public or in the grocery store, which I think we've all seen in the shopping mall, I think... I. Understood this better as a like younger owner of Momofuku than I <laughs> did when I realized because I was like, oh, it's hard for them to be in a moment to like just be calm, even though they want to. Yeah. How do you not like?
0: We're not taught emotional res- proper emotional response as kids. We aren't given the vocabulary. We aren't given the tools. I, I was actually just as I was getting my makeup done for this, talking about how. It was almost, it didn't feel like it at the time, but it was a blessing to go through a major depression at age, what, 14 or so, where, you know, I had it not been, had there not been an intervention, like I probably would have taken my own life. Mm. The, but the, and it was hell to go through. But the fact that I was given that toolkit of therapy at, uh, you know, freshmen in high school, to have all of a sudden a language to say, like, here's how I'm feeling. Here are the things I know I felt and maybe being able to intuit that in other people. But I realized that that is a, a privilege. And I happen to come from a family that understood kind of therapy. Like my sister is a therapist now. My mother was in therapy. Um, did you have any of that growing up?
1: absolutely not yeah yeah (laughs) yeah i mean come on that's that's like yeah i can laugh about that now because that's just not how i grew up yeah um at all zero um it was work 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 yeah there was no very very little emotion (laughs) yeah um from my father and it was um excel by work and Mm -hmm. uh everything i had done from sports to being up raised in a korean household which i think would be completely foreign to many people if you're an asian immigrant you would understand Mm -hmm. Uh, it's a it's hard to rationalize how many kids that are first generation immigrants were raised because the value system is literally apples and oranges it's confucianism versus anglo-saxon protestant whatever Mm -hmm. it's It's like literally two different worlds. And to be able to like uh, synthesize that in some meaningful way as someone that's growing up with American values, it was very conflicting. And, uh, um, you know, having an emotional release or having the tools to Mm -hmm. have, like that just didn't happen. Yeah, It was uh, strange. Yeah, that I just never had that, and then going to school and playing sports. I mean, shit. Like I went to a high school that graduated the past two Supreme Court justices, and wow. I hated my high school. So oh, same, I, uh, <laughs> not I, with the Supreme Court justices. Yeah, but the hating but like, high school. <laughs> yeah. I, because I, I got in because of sports. Mm-hmm. And what was your sport? Uh, I played uh, golf uh, and, and wrestling and, and football, and um, I was. I guess I played a lot of sports now I think about it but the that environment of being an all-boys school where it's I went to public school like all my brothers and sisters went to public school and then to go there and then it's like super intense yeah um
0: and a lot of masculine energy
1: it's all dudes it's like the worst possible shit so um (laughs) having emotions to express yourself Mm -hmm. I think were there but added with the angst of being a teenager. Oh it's not like Something I knew. Uh, you could not pay me to relive <laughs> those years. So I was woefully underprepared yeah. for any kind of leadership position, yeah. which is um, um, something I didn't know. And again, in cooking, you're promoted because you're a good cook, yeah. not because you know how to manage things and. That's why you see so many sort of uh, uh, broken souls in this industry that had get promoted because no one's told them mm-hmm. anything other than you're great at this because you're a great cook. But being a good cook doesn't mean anything in yeah. this business.
0: You have to learn the. How did you? W- w- did you just watch the behavior that was modeled for you? Who taught you how to lead oh, yeah, a kitchen?
1: No one. I mean, <laughs> I love the people that I work for, and I work really well in intense uh situations Mm -hmm. because by nature i'm not this i'm a wallflower (laughs) i'm very reserved and quiet i think a lot of people have a hard time believing that Mm -hmm. i would rather um have a moment pass me by than have the chance to interact with it and fail and be embarrassed yeah and in, I think a lot of times people are like, oh, Dave's just being aloof or he's being like, cocky, he doesn't want to talk to anyone. It's like, no, I actually don't want to talk to anyone because I don't like talking to anyone right. because I'm a pretty much a reserved person. Being in a restaurant and learning how to cook, that took, like, uh, it started to change me, right? Yeah. And then having an open kitchen, that started to change. And then uh, I just had no language to, to talk other than learning how to excel under intense pressure. Mm-hmm. And it's not like I even excelled under that, but getting yelled at that is that's just how I was raised.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah, you know? and you and you go either direction from there, either you become a yeller yourself or it's the worst thing that can happen to you and you have this Pavlovian response to uh to someone yelling at you and you retreat into yourself and you can go either way on that um so did when you started to lead a kitchen um did you did you yell and then people had to adapt to that particular well I didn't
1: even and that's the funny thing because I've been in therapy uh seen a psychiatrist um since I was 26
0: yay therapy
1: and and uh you know that's obviously I think been instrumental in my life and, mm-hmm. in terms of challenging me to improve myself and mm-hmm. to be better and quite frankly, saving my life. Yep. Um, but, you know, like how I acted and how I cooked in the past and how I would get so angry at little minutia mistakes happened because my priorities, why I got into the business were I think still Uh, Maybe different, and I can't speak for anyone else, but I got into cooking not because I loved food per se. Um, It gave me meaning, right? Like uh, um, how if I cook something – no, let me back up. My whole life was designed so I would not cook, from my dad to how I was able to have opportunities to cook professionally was – the last choice anyone (laughs) would have wanted me to have, particularly in my family. So I just had, uh, you know, uh, these existential dilemmas as someone that was growing up, particularly in college, and um, whether that was early signs of mental illness, probably, Mm -hmm. and I definitely think there were signs of it in high school, uh, and bouts of depression. But I I was uh, someone that needed to know like uh, in a very real way what life was worth living for. Yeah. And I took an approach that I was going to try a li- lot of different things till I figured out what I wanted to do. Because I did so poorly in school, it wasn't like I was going to get the, the jobs that I wanted. So I just did things sort of by trial and error. And I just thought sitting at a desk the rest of my life was like, you know, that was – M- life not worth living.
0: I'm trying to imagine alternate universe Dave, like at a desk, and no, no. Yeah,
1: and I would, <laughs> you know, not that it's suicide, but it's almost like a existential idea. Like uh, not to get too deep in these weird get rabbit deep, holes. Do it, you know, like uh Camus and Sisyphus, and there's like basically you can literally kill yourself, or you mm. can like metaphysically kill yourself by. Yeah. Like uh, surrendering to something that you don't want to do. I always call it right? the,
0: the slow suicide.
1: Right, and I saw that pretty early on. I was yeah. like, I will fucking wind up in the middle doing something I fucking hate. Yeah. So I always thought that maybe it's a life of service. The one thing that I found f- redeeming about my high school at all was the fact that by the Jesuits and I have a real problems with Mine it.
0: Mine was Jesuit too. Was <laughs>
1: beat they literally beat into you? you know, service. And I I was like, oh, I got to find something if I didn't do this, Mm -hmm. whether it be uh, some kind of social thing that I could do better. Right. Like Mm -hmm. at the very worst, that could give me meaning. And I decided I was going to try to cook. So I was not a good cook to start and I wanted to do it. But my dad basically again like was in the restaurant industry for 30 years and knew how hard it was did not want me to do it so i was very conflicted almost dropping out of college to do this like education whatever i didn't know right and um things i took things uh, i guess uh, i still take things very seriously (laughs) i took things very very seriously then very ideological and uh cooking very quickly uh even though I had worked as a bar back in college, and then I had uh, wait uh, like a uh, bus tables at a steakhouse, I didn't think as a career that anything that wasn't sort of predetermined from a, um, you know from my Asian parents, like they want you right. to be a doctor, lawyer, <laughs> whatever. Yeah, right?
0: there's a small sphere within which you can everything, operate. <laughs> yeah,
1: Everything else is like like. Not worthy. So yeah. I was like, "Well, I got to find out what I want to do." And the thing that seemed to be the least acceptable thing um, was much more appealing to me. And I think <laughs> early on, I, I think early on, I, I I found ways to rebel against everything. Mm-hmm. In going way back, and <laughs> then uh, so i mean I'm talking forever to set it up because I think it's super important for me to still understand that. Cooking was something that I could do, that I could own, and that I could take from, even if I was poor at it, if I cleaned really well, if I sharpened my knives Mm -hmm. really well, if I followed the recipe, and whatever I did could lead into something that was delicious and give joy and meaning to something. Mm -hmm. That physical reaction of feeding someone and giving them that feeling of total fucking like elation. That dopamine hit? Yeah, you couldn't cheat that. And I was really trying hard back then to find things that were not a lie right that were not that that couldn't be hypocritical and like that very base emotion to me was like oh like and while I couldn't earn a huge living I could live I could find a way and being a like a a chef or whatever that didn't fucking matter to me it was Mm -hmm. just like that I know is truthful
0: yeah that you can hear the motions I can take and it ends up with a smile on somebody else's face or that like, ah, oh, that little happy dance yeah. in the and seat. then
1: you start to sort of reverse engineer from there and then you learn the whole history of gastronomy and how mm-hmm. things are constructed and if you follow certain things and you do things really well from mise en place to mm-hmm. uh, treating ingredients right, you can actually start to manipulate things in like a sort of a, you know, puppet master you know Mm -hmm. use different levers to get the best out of a dish so ultimately then the only thing that mattered was making the most delicious food possible Mm -hmm. and then that's sort of surrounding yourself in kitchens where you have a motley crew of individuals particularly back then yeah um and like I remember working at restaurants, they're like, "You're the you coll- you're a college kid."
0: Yeah, it was unheard so of. So crazy. Have you been to jail? <laughs> have you like? I mean, like, you're I a
1: mean uh, yeah. This kid went to college. Have him do the food. Uh, have him do the food because right. he's good with numbers. I was like, "Whoa!" Like <gasps> I, I'm cooking here because I I can't do anything else.
0: Right, right. Like that. It, it's such a great island of misfit toys. Like the kitchen yeah. is in such a wonderful in all the good ways that that can mean I mean I've heard from so many people that they don't fit somewhere else in life and they find a home in the kitchen and and you know
1: and that's what it was that's what it was I was like oh everyone here what dawned on me was like these are individuals that could have been successful in a variety of walks of life Mm -hmm. but they found their sort of calling that they like to make food or do food or Mm -hmm. it's a variety of different reasons why but that's what I love. I love working in groups mm-hmm. and uh, for team goals. And they had that sort of sp- team sport mentality for me. And you could still be an individual and find different ways. So, like, you know, what I love about cooking, I guess, is everyone can have the same recipe, but you're going to find different ways to get there. And it was just endlessly fascinating, the different sort of pieces you would need to pull together for a good service every day and how everyone was different and different reasons why they were there. Yet. If you took them out of the kitchen, there would be like, it was comical of how unable that we, we, they were, we were all able to like sort of function in society.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So when you have that, it's, it's the end of the night, you're all, you know, cleaned everything down. Um, and your mind is still going. Talk to me about that moment, that moment back then, and that moment for you now at the end of, of service, and what you've learned about how to treat your brain in that moment. Well, it was
1: fear. <laughs> back then when I was cooking for other people, it was sheer fear that I might not have a job tomorrow. Yeah, That, that I'm that gonna get fired, and this is the only place I wanna be, and this is, your, this is where you're gonna learn, and you wanna progress through all the stations. And the power then of working in a restaurant, like very different today, where I think the chefs uh, don't have as much power compared to the cooks.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, it was not that long ago where, I mean, I know a lot of cooks that I work with feel the same way that you're looking for approval, mm-hmm. and you may if you don't get that, maybe you're going to get replaced. Yeah, or you're going to that you're just not doing your job well. That would just be gut wrenching. Right. The reason why service went bad was because of you. Right. You
0: were the cog in the machine that
1: slipped That fear <laughs> was so real that I never felt relief.
0: Yep. <laughs> I, know. Uh,
1: I mean, you know, I was talking to Jeremy Fox about this mm-hmm. and I feel we were very similar that even if you went home or even if you were drinking a beer, your mind was racing because you were thinking about everything. Did I wrap this right? Did I put the mm-hmm. label on here? Did I make the right note for my am partner? Did I do this? And it was just never ending. And um, you know, you live and breathe it to the point where you don't know anything else.
0: Yeah, if you have a. There's a long-term debilitating aspect to fear on your, on your muscles, on the makeup of your brain chemistry, and I mean, it, it can be actual trauma um, having living like that for for such a long time because it, it it forms how you stand how you move through the world how you talk to other people what chemicals get fired in your brain and i, I you know I've, I've, I've seen you over the course of the past 10 years or something or, or so i feel like you've unlearned a lot of that stuff in a way that's uh, uh, increasingly <laughs> healthy is is it's that the case uh, or i have always known
1: it was not right i just yeah. again ha- am now finally uh, developing some kind of tools and um avenues uh, different avenues to take it's it's my default setting is to go down these roads
2: yeah right
1: like it's, it's been so programmed right. to me to go to instant rage or anger mm-hmm. or s- just feeling things that are not good and uh, again like <laughs> without getting a lot of help i don't know if i would even have the basic tools to even acknowledge that mm-hmm. Knowing in your head that you need to get better is very different than actually executing it. And that's the biggest thing for a lot of people. Just because you know it does not mean that you are doing fucking anything.
0: That's getting to help. Um, I'm going to shout out a number really quickly because I, I always think this is important. Um, crisis text line, text at 741741, and 24-7 by people who, who give a damn, who have done the training. I have gone through that training. And if you're ever in a moment of crisis, you can, you can text them and they will uh, help you get to a, a safer place. Um, because there are, there are some, um, when, when you're in that mindset, um, I, I, I have a panic disorder in addition to ADHD, anxiety, and depression. And I went through um, a really, really bad panic spiral last summer. I saw you sort of, uh, I'd started dealing with well, it. We talked I, a little
1: bit about it. Though. Yeah, yeah,
0: and I started dealing, and I ended up going on medication for it. Um, but the point that I had to get to to think where I'm really going to do something about this and and, um, and not just live in this thing where my body and mind are torturing me 24-7, that was a really hard thing to do. Even though I've been to therapy for years, um, I had not been on medication for 11 years. Um, and just getting to that point where I was so afraid that they were going to say like, oh, your brain is fully busted for the rest of your life and there is no hope for you. And that is a, a scary thing. And I ended up going on medication and within 40 minutes my brain and my body felt better than they had in like 10 years. But to get to that point, even as a person who is a very public advocate of mental health treatment and stuff, it was even hard for me. So if you're a person who doesn't have any of the stuff that I grew up with, where I've been going to therapy for all this time, how do you make that move?
1: You know, I think that we talked about this in mad a few years ago and it's not that I was disagreeing with you. Oh, like, you were, it was okay. <laughs> we we I, actually I did disagree, but uh, I, I didn't know if I conveyed it in a better way. I was like, I was like, you wanted to reach out to chefs, but I was like, cat, like, it's not being blessed. That's not it. It's like you've had the experience yeah. to know, and I was like, I know these people that mm-hmm. are in this business, and almost everyone needs help, and yeah. they don't. They're not going to talk about it. Yeah, <laughs> like they yeah. don't know how to do it. They're they they do not even have the basic yeah. alphabet. Yeah. And I was just trying to figure out how you could do it, where it would be more meaningful for people to understand what it is.
0: Yeah. No, because I know we had this we had this conversation. So we did a podcast <laughs> that and no one will ever hear because uh, it actually got erased. Um, I was sitting down with uh, Daniel Patterson, who I, I um, hope will come on this soon. And we were, we were talking about stuff because he's it was before he was super public about mental health. And, um, and, and now he, since then he has become like really very public about it. And you were, I remember you came in there and you were telling him like, Hey man, you know, you're, you're saying all this stuff. Like, why don't you kind of shut up about it and just deal with it? Where? So uh, I
1: remember that because Dan (laughs) Patterson is so brave and I remember him telling me, he's like, this is what's happening. And, uh, uh, I'm I'm just going to let everyone know. I was like, Dan, it, it, it's very Precarious to talk about what's going on with oneself, yeah, because it can seem like you're projecting that it should be the same for everyone else, right? Absolutely, and that's all I was trying to say. It was like it just is happening. This is a this is a welcome. You now acknowledge a lifelong battle that you're going to have, yeah. And I feel like in a weird way, it's like calling your home run before the pitch even happens, yeah. And it's it's so hard not to do that, yeah. And and that's why it was like, Dan, I'm here. And that's not just Dan, I, I just think it's hard not to just, if you're going to embrace it, how do you like yeah. talk about it in a way that, you know what I mean?
0: Yeah. The The thing, you know, I, and I I've thought so much about that conversation and I think you and I since then have both gone through a fair amount of reckoning about what we want to put out in the world and how to convey it. Cause that really did stick with me because, you know, I, I stood up at mad symposium, which is, a, you know, international, uh, gathering of chefs and talked about the crisis in the industry, which everybody knew existed, but not everybody really wanted to talk about. And half the people were like, Oh fuck. Yeah. You know, we, we need to talk about this. Another half was like, why are you doing this? Why are you trying to make us pussies? Why are, why are you trying to, you know, and, and got pushback on it. Um, and I thought, like, okay, let me figure out like what I need to do with this. And then um, something happened last year that made us have to talk about it. Um, it's okay if we go down this road because, sure. yeah, um, Anthony Bourdain killed himself, and uh, you did an incredible podcast in the wake of that, where you were very. It was a gift that you gave to um, the, the the culinary community, to the world at large, where you talked very openly about what you had, had been through, and we went back to MAD Symposium um, this year, and I didn't get any pushback talking about stuff this time, and, and people are talking about it. And,
1: uh, yeah, yeah, it's a... Uh... You know, I think about a lot of these things all the time, and I don't know if I would have... I I listened to that thing, that podcast, after Bourdain passed, and I was like, I don't know if I would ever do that. I can't take it back now, Yeah. but um, uh, it was... uh, It was, and still will be, something that I'm reckoning with, we all are but i didn't i didn't know i didn't know what was going on then and i just felt that um, if tony could feel this way and without going down all of the roads that yeah people have talked about that man this is problematic because um i mean more than problematic like how to we don't have a way to talk about any of this stuff. So I don't know what compelled me to talk about it. Um, Of all the things I've ever done, I feel like I've gotten more uh, to this day uh, feedback or emails or messages about that. And it's, it's really hard because it's not a compliment. You don't want to read it as a compliment, but I get a lot of messages from chefs being like, Hey man, like I really need to listen to that. And, uh, you know i'm 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 getting help now or i'm getting back on help now and you're seeing this sort of rising tide of chefs you know a lot of it is because you've been more like having this forum to talk about it chefs saying like hey why why are we doing things a certain way what are we doing like what's the what's the reasoning for us to get blind drunk what's the reason for us to get at like uh why are we yelling at each other what the fuck is going on and i think it's going to take time yeah that's all i know is none of this stuff that's happened the past year is going to be answered in a year it's the beginning of a process of a conversation um because no one's had these conversations before. Yeah. Right? Like
0: or they have maybe <clears throat> not in a public way but individually and 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 just in little pockets and the pockets are coming together. I mean, I want to say <clears throat> pardon me. Um it was important that it was you doing that, that it was that this message was coming from from you. Um because uh, because of your stature, because of, of your your friendship with Tony because of uh, you know a million reasons. And so it was it was the, the bearer of the message was very, very important in, in that it, ma- it mattered. Um, the way that I've seen a lot of this manifesting, so, you know, I have this, this um, Eat Chefs with Issues uh, Facebook group that I had started a year, uh, almost a year before that. I had been running Chefs with Issues for a pretty long time, but uh, actually started the uh, Facebook group while I was recovering from surgery because I was thinking, I'm no, of no use to the world right now. Let me try something that is of use to the world. And because I couldn't emotionally deal with getting the onslaught of, of emails and, and messages and hundreds, thousands of, of messages from people in in pain. And I thought I need to outsource this. (coughs) Um, the, the day that the news came out about Tony, there were 827 people in the group. There are about 3000 now. And within that first, first day, people were joining by the hundreds Mm -hmm. and so many people saying that, uh, they didn't know how to articulate this. So they were just going to dump on the page. And that's what happens now that I find that there is a lot of people who are saying, I, you know, I, I've never been to therapy. I've never talked about this, but I'm just going to brain dump on the page. And the fact that there is a chorus of cooks, chefs, whoever coming back and say like, I understand you. I see you. You don't have to be articulate. The fact that you said anything is is important, and then it's, you know, we can go from there, but I think just speaking the words, it's, you know, for me, when I started talking about it publicly, it was via CNN, and I felt like it was like a coming out mm. in, in a way, and then, you know, getting responses from people, but realizing, like, there are other people out there who feel the same way is
2: But huge. that's, what
1: I feel, is a very tricky, um, it's so hard, and I feel like maybe I'm better equipped to talk about what I was wanting to talk to Copenhagen about. yeah. Is there needs to be diversity in how people have the ability to talk about it yeah and um, I know for myself I'm not a group Mm -hmm. even though I'm I share so much I'm not by nature like I don't talk to people in groups it's not something I want to do which is again sounds fucking weird but I don't like group things yeah you know like I've gone to support friends in rehab I, I don't like that you know that's just me i don't feel comfortable yeah i know it's highly effective um but i need other avenues like uh, whether it's reading a book or it's listening to something and that's that's just what i feel i guess why it's important to talk about it is like you don't have to feel bad because you're not talking about it in a group chat or whatever it's just like start with thinking about it and um i don't know talking about all this stuff and uh, you being so forthright and honest like that was important like to have that that, mm-hmm. that page where people could talk about it like uh it's so important but like i remember when bourdain passed and yeah. everyone is talking about these suicide hotlines and i i just was like yes very important but also um there are a lot of people that don't want to feel stigmatized because they have to call a hotline. Yeah. So I was like, how the fuck do you talk about this then? Because so many people don't want to feel like they have to resort to calling anything.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's actually why I like Crisis Text Line because it's all just via text. And so you don't have to speak out loud and they sort of have particular, they'll guide you through the conversation, which is why I like it. But you're right at the same time when I'm you know encouraging other people to talk and, and all of this, and I, p- I put a fair amount out into the world, but I'm dealing with my private stuff all the time. And, you know, I go to therapy, I, you know, now have meds. Um, and, and I'm trying to figure out like, that, but there's a lot of stuff I don't broadcast because I, I just, I don't want to burden somebody else with it. I don't, you know, I need to find a healthier way to deal with it. I was actually, I was talking with Andrew Zimmern about this recently because he was really, really helpful in the wake of, of Tony's death that we, you know, got some chefs together in Aspen and talked through some things. And we were talking about the importance of a daily practice. And I actually saw him a couple of weeks ago and I said, I still don't know what mine is. What is that thing that I can do that is not going to therapy or talking to people. Do I do I draw? Do I, I'm not a runner, I, you know? Do I go and punch something? Do I make bread? Like, what is that, that thing? I'm still looking for it. And I think there are probably a lot of people in restaurant kitchens and stuff who need that other uh, thing. I mean, I'm talking to more and more people, like what is, I ask a question on the Chefs with Issues group every week. And I say, what is the thing you've done either in the past few days or we'll do this week to benefit your mental or physical health. And the range of responses is pretty amazing. Some people are just going to, are just saying like, ah, smoke some pot, you know, and that's one thing. But you know, somebody would be like, well, I went and like stood by a lake and like didn't bring my phone, whatever it is, but there is a vast, there's no one way.
1: There is no one way. And that's again, my private sort of battle with, uh, reading or talking about this stuff is I feel over the years I've I've tried to read just about everything I could meaningful. And there's really very few things that are, I think applicable for anyone else. Um, because it's just, everyone is their own fucking person and their own problems and their own neuroses. So, um, you know, my only conclusion after Bourdain passed, and this mm-hmm. is something I've been working towards anyway, was uh, talk is cheap. Yeah. Um, in the sense that maybe the best thing I can do in a very pragmatic fashion is to live by example. Yeah. And to be as open about all my shortcomings as possible. Um, it's
0: a gift. It is, because I know what it costs you as a private person to put that into the world. The emotional energy that goes into that, um, that takes a lot, and so you might think it seems like something small, but it's a gift that you're you're giving, and that is a really huge, that's huge.
1: Thanks, I just, um, I don't know, I think this all stems from working in an open kitchen. It's just like, there's no nothing left to hide, right? And I remember very early on not being able to, I was just telling my shrink about this. I was like, I don't know what the fuck happened where I can <laughs> talk about this.
0: Yeah, I mean, um, the, yeah, it's not what
1: I, w- I ever wanted to do. I was so embarrassed to even acknowledge that I, I had a problem.
0: You you uh, you actually gave me a hug backstage at Mad before I went out um, to talk to people about about this. And that like that kind of blew my mind. The fact that you were willing to you know step outside your, your, your yourself and and do that and and give the encouragement you you sort of gave me a like a, a little pep talk beforehand and there was not was I didn't <laughs> didn't know you very well I wasn't expecting that and, and that actually was a huge part of what propelled me out onto stage to do the at that point the scariest thing I'd ever done so you might think it's a small thing but you know it's it it, it really is this 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 constant like check-in I mean the th- drives me nuts when people talk about mental illness oh i cured this i whatever like that no the w- the everyday work of it is so <laughs> exhausting i wish some days i didn't have to right. do you feel that too <laughs>
1: um i <sighs> you know when i am conscious about talking depression I, it's very hard for me to like talk as. uh to talk about it, it's yeah. it's when I'm not thinking about it, it's so much easier to talk about. But yeah. I've learned to embrace it. Yeah. Um, and um, there are, I have to believe benefits to thinking the way I do. And I, uh, I sort of abhor <laughs> blatant optimism.
0: Oh God! Instagram optimism makes me nuts. <laughs>
1: Um, it's almost like a totalitarian state to just think that everything's going to fucking work out. Mm -hmm. And I think the best way to be an optimist is to think that you're going to be a... The best way to be an optimist is to hope to be wrong as a pessimist. I like that. And and, uh, I've just learned that it is what it is, and once you deal with it long enough, as I have for me, you just wrestle with it to the point where it is just everything and i i have these things and i let them it's just fucking weird talking about it out loud uh, yeah i
0: know yeah no i know and the, which is why i appreciate it that you're you're so yeah i
1: don't I don't know why I, it may be because i found that there's such a dearth of like meaningful uh ways to talk about it or to listen to it or to read about it um you know like the best book on depression i think is you know uh, uh uh, Will Styron's uh, sort of semi-autobiographical, know oh his autobiographical point of, uh, uh, um, God damn it, I can't remember the name right now. Will Styron, who won a Pulitzer for, um
0: it's wait, who did the Noonday Demon? Is that Noonday this? Demon
1: is another great book. Yeah, um, and his father was in the pharmaceutical business, mm-hmm. and uh, um, that's that's a there there are the the better books are the ones that are not being prescriptive about what you should be doing, but also Uh, just telling you that I got fucking problems. So, um, again, I don't know what's compelled me to talk about it, but I feel like I've been talking about it always. I just have never, (laughs) I've always talked about it. Yeah. Um,
0: (laughs) just not in front of a microphone necessarily. Yeah,
1: but to people I've never like shied away from it. I mm. think people that know me, I've always been like, well, Dave's a little off. (laughs) Uh,
0: (laughs) All the best, here's all the best people are like, what even I, I, what even is on? And if the, if you find the person who is seemingly the most functional and happy go lucky, shiny person, 10 out of 10, they're dealing with some stuff. Right.
1: You You know, know. and it's true. It's like, we all are. And uh, yeah, I mean, talking about it is the first step. And uh, I don't know. I have so much to say about this, but I'm, very reserved talking about yeah, it because okay. it, it we don't have to keep it scar- no, no, it <laughs> just scares me to talk about it yeah. because I feel like people need to do their own thing and all I know is they just have to just uh, hold out hope
0: I mean to me it's there's strength and vulnerability a thing that we are you know taught that I know uh, uh, the phrase that I keep hearing you know come up in kitchens always always shut up and cook you know where you're you're, you're tough you're tough you're tough and then you snap and And there's that, the the more that, uh, the things that I grew up with that I am the most, felt the most shame about, about dealing with mental illness or physical things or, you know, whatever it happened to be, the biggest gift I ever gave myself was, was... You know, being out with it and feel, feeling like, you know what? I'm Teflon now. I already put all my stuff out there. I realize it really helps to write a, a book about your <laughs> stuff because <laughs> then it's all out there because, you know, I lived in fear of people thinking either that I didn't care about them because I didn't show up at their events Uh, you know that hurt their feelings somehow and it was you know and being able to explain in public well it's because I'm afraid to leave my house you know which was the most shameful thing in the world to me and I developed so it took so much energy because I would show up somewhere finally and I'd smile sparkle all this kind of stuff uh, because I didn't to compensate for the fact of how crappy I felt inside Um, but to have that out as a narrative in the world like okay this is just what she's dealing with like it gives somebody else permission to to talk about it. You've also, though, done some things, and this really impresses me, that systemically within your restaurant group, you know, I, I, I've i spent a fair amount of time talking with your uh, director of HR, who is, is a mighty, mighty force.
1: Leslie <laughs> is the best.
0: She's, she's an incredible woman, and I definitely want to have her on the podcast. But you've done some things uh, for caretaking for the people who work with you. Um, can you talk about that?
1: Yeah, I mean... Um, I mean, we're not a perfect organization. And I, uh, I I always am hesitant to talk about this stuff because it seems like preachy or like uh, I'm... It's imp- the like tall flaw- poppy thing. You know thing. what I mean? But, no, I, I understand, but, but somebody's uh, got to take the hit. <laughs> but, um, you know, just the irony is is that <laughs> most people, I, I would imagine when they think of like David, like hey, he's a yeller, he's got a terrible <laughs> temper. Um, how could they also try to create an environment that's nurturing and, and like positive and the reality is, is like I think we've tried. That's always been our goal, but we're learning to be better at how we implement these things and um, just trying to provide as many services to our team as possible. And I'm always aware that if I'm a cook or a server working in our restaurant group, um, we're at a point, I think industry-wide, that we're not doing enough. Mm-hmm. And this is a longer story about how Things are only going to change in our business. So about what, what we're allowed to offer to our employees if people pay more for fucking food. Yep. And uh, that's just it. And this is a collision right now of, um, you know, manual labor, essentially, right? The most widely accessible job that you can have, both as a cook and a server in this country and abroad. That is now merging with professionalism Um with the same laws and understanding that if we were working at Google or some high-end tech company, and rightfully so, we should have the same standards, that reckoning is going to take time. And to project this sort of, again, like everything that needs to change should change in the culinary industry because there are a lot of things, as we've seen uh, in the past year or two, that – are, 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 are vestiges of the old that have never been appropriate. But yeah. um, in how we apply sort of services to our cooks, and that's mm-hmm. what I'm talking about, and how we take care of our own and how we give a living wage and all these things, it's it's uh, all this stuff is going to take time. yeah. And right now, the microscope is on how we look at the culinary world. But I think at the end of the day, we can't provide everything unless we uh, uh, actually grow as a company and scale, which is one of the reasons why we're trying to grow. Yeah. Or people pay a lot more for food, and people have the margins, right? Like I remember going to some tech company and like daycare inside the building, right? Like, yeah. Can you imagine a restaurant <laughs> that has daycare?
0: There, I mean, in
1: I, in the restaurant, that is not like that is also very good.
0: I there, I mean, there Reem also like takes her kids to work, you know, and that's the thing. I, I think that's actually I've seen some women driven restaurants where people do bring their kids, and and it, these are smaller scale operations, obviously, but it would be amazing to see like. I always say Darden is my white whale. Like right. if I could get, you know, 15 minutes with the people from Darden and be like, hey, you know, here's you know some things you can do. But like, can you imagine like restaurants on that kind of scale having like childcare? Yeah, available? I was
1: talking to someone at Goldman Sachs who's a new a new mother, and she's like, she gets like I don't know how many days of emergency childcare, wow. right? And I was like, what the delta between <laughs> restaurant history <laughs> and what Goldman Sachs can offer is massive and vast but to me there are a lot of answers and reasons that we need to like change to get there but first and foremost is how do we get people to pay more for food and this is not an answer that I have we're talking about massive
0: this is something I think about a lot honestly as a person who is in the media because I see both parts of this and I think it's about we need to kind of work together and shape the narrative and you know I've banged this drum a million times people really care about how the chicken was raised but not about the line cook yeah. who was making that and and change the perception of like what goes what goes into food about valuing labor about val- valuing people about valuing immigrants is a huge part of these and valuing the lives of what goes into a, a restaurant meal and I think a lot of the onus of that is on is on media to help convey that to people what they are actually paying for um i don't think that people understand like you know tipped mim- minimum wage i don't think that they understand the hours that people put in i don't think they understand you know the hours that people don't get paid for people it. don't
1: quite i don't say people many people still don't understand how you know a piece of steak got to them
0: yeah how yeah. are they going
1: to understand yeah anything else yeah <laughs> but the fact that yeah. this was not just this piece of meat <laughs> did not fall from a tree right you know, um, food is just this weird thing because you can bury so much shit along the way.
0: Oh God, yeah, and and I think that and that's been part of the the thing that has uh, you know, especially in the last like five years, has like, driven me nuts about restaurants as I've gotten to know people more and more and been open about this. The the sort of the, the T- uh, valuing the diner's experience above the people who, who make it. And that, that that irony sickens me on a regular basis that it's such a, it's a hospitality um, industry and people are being least hospitable to themselves.
1: Right. And I, I wonder now the, 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 cha- the, the, sea change that's happening, right? Like is food going to be less delicious if people like, if we, we make these changes that should be happening and uh, I don't know what that answer is, but I do know from my peer group, everyone that I'm friends with would want a better working environment and to pay everyone more and all of mm-hmm. these things that are very sensible and rational and empathetic. But again, just like we have hard time talking about our sort of uh, I- mental illness, we have a hard time figuring out what the hell is happening because we still don't have the tools as to what's right. Yeah. And there's a credible amount of pressure right now. So Huge, it's yeah. mm, speaking from just a, if I'm going to speak for she- like some chefs, how does the media understand this? Because there's constant criticism, mm-hmm. right? Like constant evaluations, and from Yelp to Instagram, to Twitter. You need to be sort of ruthless when evaluating something. Yeah. But if we're going to become more empathetic as an industry, I do believe the media needs to understand that as well. Yeah. And to viciously destroy a restaurant because they didn't do something right or to penalize someone because they didn't do something right. Again, like I understand a lot of critics probably will take down a restaurant because they they're bigger corporate behemoth, right? They mm-hmm. can do it. But I do know there's a lot of people that maybe a dish wasn't right because, mm-hmm. you know, X, Y, and Z happen All things that were beyond their control and life happens. Yeah. And how does the media at large uh, calculate these things? Yeah. Because all I know from serving food for a long time is the customer doesn't give a fucking shit. Yeah. Their media doesn't care if the food's not right. Mm -hmm. right they're judging you on what is there and let's just say it's a a six-month period where things are not right right like yeah uh, you know i know one of our you know i I have a hard time talking about this because i don't want to talk about too many things but there are things that happen whether they're immigration issues or whether they're deaths in the family or just shitty life stuff that happens that dramatically affect restaurants
0: oh yes and
1: people that are evaluating these restaurants have no fucking idea. Yeah. So w- that's what gets me so goddamn angry. Yeah. Where I'm like, they're working their asses off to do their best, yet you are judging them in a way that is not really empathetic. And I know that the critics are not trying to be mean. Yeah. But they have to wear the hat of being ruthless, I get that. But the question I present to them is, how do you nurture? not judge yeah right how do you present criticism that is hopeful not damning yeah and we live in a world where it's give me your give me your hot take right now and if we're all challenging our default settings right Mm -hmm. to 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 get better right that's the only thing i and you can do is to get better as people like everyone else needs to as well too That if they're going to be in this business
0: I feel like I've heard the word empathy mentioned more in the last like half year than I have ever before in my life, and I think that's what is coming to in all industries, realizing that it's made up of, of people. And, you know, we, you know, I, I, I think that there are, there is going to be a learning curve. time. this is a big boat to have to tur- to turn around and stuff. But honestly, you talking openly about this is. I think it's a real it's a step forward, and the conversations that that come out of this. I think that's you know like
1: not everyone has to read David Foster Wallace because a lot of it is really <laughs> dense, and if you very much just read his lobster piece that he wrote for Gourmet, it's amazing. Yeah, um, but the, the 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 gateway to one of my favorite writers. That for most people is that acceptance uh, the graduation speech oh he gave to Kenyan. I love that. And like you can see this in his writing regardless, because he's someone that also passed away by suicide. And uh, you know, one day maybe I'll talk about all my thoughts on this stuff. Shut up <laughs> yeah, uh, on the podcast. He uh <laughs> he talks in a, it's like the the Fisher Price f- of David Foster Wallace, and it's really powerful stuff. But the moment that uh, if you're in a grocery store, if you're driving, you're like, "Why is that person being a jerk on the road?" Mm-hmm. Right? They're they're swerving in between lanes, and they're you your instant reaction would be this giant SUV that's being a total dick. Yeah. Like, fuck them.
0: Yeah, that asshole. Yeah.
1: <laughs> they're guzzling gas. Fuck them. All <laughs> these things. Like, you don't know. Yeah. There might be a sick kid in the car. They might mm-hmm. be all these other things happening. You don't know. And this judgment culture that we're in right now, I think, if anything empathy can't just be a word that we say it's something that we have to be patient and to let things unfold because you never fucking know what's going on in anyone's life yeah and you know why is someone grumpy why is that mother that's you know angrily you know maybe yelling at her kid like i think he's like says like you don't know they could have just come from the hospital and her her husband passed away like yeah you have no fucking idea these might be extreme situations but ultimately uh empathy gets thrown around too much without Mm -hmm. any real weight behind it Mm -hmm. because to me empathy means not just feeling about how someone might feel something it should cause you pause to withhold making a judgment on a situation yeah and just letting it play out
0: I feel like that I've had to do a lot of work for that myself, but I feel like I'm finally getting to a place where I just <laughs> I remember I was on a crowded subway and someone was chewing gum into my ear and I was, it was driving me nuts. And I thought, you know what? That person doesn't want to be here either. I pick my thumb, she was snapping her gum. Like that's, we all have our, and, and just that for some reason, I had this light bulb moment like right in that thing. Like she's not doing that to piss anybody off. She's just trying to be a person in the world. And I try to go forth with that. empathy
1: is acceptance ultimately yeah and um being pragmatic is is to me the philosophy that i try to um, i try i'm not great at it to 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 challenge myself is to ask why i'm feeling the way i do about something and almost every time i react to something off the cuff um and i'm not thoughtful about it it's a reaction that might have worked for me 15 years ago, yeah. but is no longer <laughs> like, yeah, doesn't work anymore. Yeah. So, um, and the funny thing with chefs in this industry, particularly if you're trying to push the envelope, um, you're always gravitating towards the most difficult thing. Like cooking's the dumbest fucking profession. Oh, it's so doing.
0: masochistic. Right.
1: <laughs> like, like if you're good, it's not you do less work, you get more work. <laughs> you know, you want more specials. You 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 want. The hardest possible outcomes because that's what it means to be a great cook and chef. Um, any and every avenue to being more difficult is what you're taught to embrace. Mm-hmm. Yet, as a chef, you know, our reactions are the ones that are uh, almost primal in terms of how our response is to a s- situation. And for me, I can't speak for anyone else, it is to fly off the handle. And I have worked very hard as to understanding why I get angry at something um, and I'm you know just acknowledging that and, not, and trying to get better at that but it doesn't mean I'm going to be perfect at it Yeah. and the reality is is like how do you how do you tell a cook that if you want to work harder and get a better knife and make this pickup more difficult how do you teach them that like uh, not following on your default setting is what you also need to be working on as well. Yeah. Now don't give in to the, your basic impulse. Yeah. And in a very simplistic stupid way I I genuinely think in Star Wars terms like bring it bring the Star it's, Wars it's, it's it's um I always felt that the dark side was way cooler. <laughs>
2: I, w- yep. I was
1: like, it's so much cooler. The
0: clothing is better.
1: They <laughs> got to do cooler fucking tricks with their powers, and, <laughs> you know. And it's just TV, but you know, in some ways, the reason why I think Star Wars resonates with the world over is because it does represent some very basic understandings of the human condition. And I mean, as a cook, we are, and I we wrote about this in Lucky Peach. You're trained to like. I was trained under the dark side. Yes. And that's just what you knew. There was no other yeah. way. But then, if you think about it, if you're a stormtrooper, how the fuck would you know you're working for an evil empire?
0: No, if that's all you—if <laughs> if that's all you know,
1: right? And then going back to the Foster Wallace uh, yeah. speech, it's like, how do you know what you're breathing water? Yeah, yeah. Right? Like it is what it is. And only through pain and suffering and trying to see different avenues have I realized, like, oh, there's other ways. Mm-hmm. And then you have to get over yourself because anytime anything's new is presented to me, particularly in the culinary industry, right? As another side to this, it's been so difficult to get us as a culinary profession to adopt the metric system for fuck's sake. Right? Like so dumb. It's so much better than ounces. Yeah. Yeah. It's more precise yet. People think that it's lame. And I'm like, if we can't adopt the goddamn metric system, <laughs> how the fuck is anyone going to see anything else, All right? So, I I think I think that when you're presented with new in this industry that's been so stuck in its ways for so long, people get scared because um, their livelihood or their meaning is going to be challenged. So, change is good, and you know this industry needs a kick in the ass. But you know I I think that for me. When I think about <coughs> challenging myself to be the best version of myself, and the most difficult version of me is to be patient to be calm, to be thoughtful, to analyze a situation without reacting breathe uh, yeah, and that's fucking hard and I'm learning like that being a jedi must be way more <laughs> difficult than being a uh, <laughs> <laughs> the dark side like way more difficult oh
0: my god i want to go down this road so much further but i know we're on a time crunch um so i have a few questions yeah. that i ask everybody that i hope actually i think we'll probably, i doubt we'll anyone probably get thought th- we
1: were going to go down this fucking i wanted to
0: spend like another hour telling <laughs> you know obviously it i think about it
1: a lot i, yeah. I,
0: I like i want to <laughs> read that essay from you um so there's you know you you've been really generous with putting all this out there and 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 i know that that is hard but this is the Oprah thing um, where you put out into the world what is the selfish thing that you want for you what's something you want <laughs>
1: um, what I want is to be present for my family and to not feel guilty about that and I struggle with that every day uh, especially since my son's been born because yeah. I have to work and uh, I know what the answer is but I don't know how to do it yeah yeah Like, to not feel angst that I'm not working is fucking hard. Yeah. Because I derive meaning from work. I am a workaholic.
2: Yeah.
1: Right? And I am acutely aware that Tony was a workaholic. That That was his addiction. My addiction is fucking work. Like, and it's also a blessing and a curse because it keeps me alive. Yeah. But it's also a fucking addiction. And it prevents me from enjoying just about anything else in life. Yeah. So it's the first time in my life, besides my wife, that I have something that needs me to care about it more than work. And yeah. I'm at a – it's fucking me up. Oh,
0: man. So anybody out there who is listening who can help Dave with this, <laughs> this is what that question is for. Um, what is your comfort food? Oh, man, I don't know anymore. <laughs> Do you get to pick it changes what Changes all the time, right? Yeah. I mean,
1: at the end of the day, I think it's so hard to go wrong with chicken fingers or Popeyes or yeah. – You got a kid; you're gonna gonna be eating more chicken fingers. Like (laughs) honestly, comfort food is anything that's just delicious. Yeah, you know,
0: to give yourself that moment where you're not analyzing and you're just enjoying.
1: Yeah, (laughs) it's just like whatever you want to (laughs) fucking eat. That's your (laughs) comfort food.
0: I like that. Um, What's the last meal that you had that made you emotional?
1: Um, man, (sighs) I sound like a (laughs) just because I I I cooked it myself, (laughs) all right, and I cooked it recently and uh it was we have um, a jamaican baby nurse we're fortunate enough to we have like someone that's helping us out in their daytime because i don't that's the other thing that's fucking me up is like (laughs) how most kids have been born with nothing yeah or oftentimes with a, a mother that has no means it's been really weighing heavy on me and uh i've been making like a lot of jamaican food yeah and that's been very meaningful for me because it's like uh, it's moving me because I'm like, oh, this is the fucking future. Jamaican food to me is like future food. Yeah. So I feel really excited about that. And that moved me because like I'm making food for someone that knows Jamaican food. And right. it's like a challenge. Like yeah. I got to make this better than something you shouldn't <laughs> get in the grill. You know,
0: that's but, yeah. awesome. Oh, God, I want that meal. <laughs> so but what is the li- then next question, which goes right into this? What is the last meal that somebody made for you at their house?
1: Man. No
0: one cooks for chefs. So no
1: so one cooks so. cooks for, I, I have a meal at someone's house? Oh my God. I don't know if I can answer that. Or I, did, have, I have nothing... Or did it... I guess my mom. Okay, what did yeah.
0: your mom make for you? Uh,
1: my mom made pinnadook, so it's Korean mung bean pancakes, and we were at the hospital, and um, she found a way to buy all the ingredients, go back to our apartment, and she made it for us um oh. regardless and i told her not to do it and she still did it and then when she left back f- to go home i was very excited that oh. she made it for us still that's so nice so we froze them so whenever we're, we're we're hankering for one of her delicious cakes i mean among bean pancakes we we reheat
0: them that sounds so good like a little present that keeps happening yeah. so what living musician would you want to cook for and what would you make them
1: living musician
0: i know <laughs> that's the wrinkle oh <laughs> my god Living musician. And we got one question after this. <laughs> I don't know,
1: living musician. Let me think about that. That's These are fucking hard questions. Sorry. Oh, <laughs> uh,
0: yeah. This is why I'm glad there aren't a lot of podcasts uh, of th- this out there yet, so people don't know what the questions are. <laughs> well, I'll ask you the, the other one while y- if you want to think about that. You have five uninterrupted minutes for self care. What do you do?
1: Five interrupt the
0: five. Oh, man. So you're left alone for five minutes. Everything else is taken care of. The kid's not crying, The your wife is happy, maybe taking a nap, the kitchen's fine.
1: Honestly, I'd probably read a book.
0: What are you <laughs> reading right now?
1: Oh, man. You don't want to know.
0: I do! <laughs>
1: it's so weird. I <laughs> I don't know what the fuck, I where I have the time to read this stuff, but uh, I've been reading all these old books that I never really read in college, sort of did, but didn't understand it, so... <laughs> I've been reading and rereading The Birth of Tragedy by Friedrich Nietzsche so much. Oh, man. <laughs> and, uh, a few other things, but that's embarrassing to admit, no. but uh, I've been really wrestling with a lot of the things that he said years ago. So, um, yeah. That's, and, and, uh, A
0: <laughs> little, yeah. little light
1: nighttime oh, reading. <laughs> little light time reading, yeah. Um, I, I won't answer, uh, Living musician, but <laughs> I'll probably say Beethoven.
0: Okay, what would you make for Beethoven?
1: I don't know. <laughs> you I just no want to But I just want to know how. You know that would be that would be cool.
0: That is awesome. Yeah,
1: because <laughs> I don't know what the fuck is wrong with me as I get older. Like while I'm still listening to all this new stuff, and Malcolmus just has a new album out. Oh, yeah. I I've been listening to Ode to Joy, the sim- oh, Ninth Symphony, yeah. like yeah.
0: all the time,
1: and I don't know what is wrong with me.
0: You got dad hormones? Like know,
1: <laughs> yeah, it is everything's changed. <laughs> like everything's changed after my son's been born because I'm like, oh yeah, this is what I'm gonna listen to. It's like what what?
0: <laughs> Nietzsche and Beethoven. Yeah, what the fuck is <gasps> oh my I sound
1: like such a fucking idiot talking about this stuff. No, so David. I mean I just was very truthful. I was like, shit, I didn't want to talk about it, but you forced that out of me. Sorry
0: about that. Anyway. <laughs> well, thank you so much to our guest today, God David Chick. I
1: <laughs> should have just said us weekly.
0: Fuck. <laughs> And uh, thank you to our uh, our pr- producers, Je- Jennifer Martinick, Alicia Cabral, Amy Frank. Um, people can find you on social all over the place. People can go to your restaurants all over the place.
1: Yeah, we... we um we have uh, stuff going on but we're, we're thankful for everyone <laughs> oh man supporting us.
0: and thank you to douglas wagner for our delightful theme song if you like what you heard please tell a friend write a review or rate us if there's something you'd like to talk about or a guest you'd like to hear from please let us know you can find me on twitter at kitten with a whip find out more about the show and catch up on all the episodes at food and and at food and wine's youtube page thank you for listening and take good care of yourself until the next time
1: Thanks for having me. Did I drop too many F-bombs? Oh, I'm no. pretty sure I did. No, no. I didn't. Even <laughs>